Alright everyone, welcome to Brandon at Random Reviews. I am your host, Brandon Griffiths. Thank you for stopping by, I do appreciate it. Today on the show, we've got Goodwill Hunting, released on December 5th, 1997, directed by Gus Van Zant. He also made the movie My Own Private Idaho, and I think that one's got Keanu Reeves and River Phoenix, among others, in it. And I've never gotten around to seeing that one. I'd like to see it. I've heard it's good from critics, but I also have not heard many people that I know talk about the movie. So it's kind of it's kind of a up in the air type thing that I haven't been very motivated to see. He also did To Die For with Nicole Kidman. God, I really thought I, when I was a kid, like one of my friends had this movie on VHS. We never got together and sat down and watched the movie. I got this image in my head because I, I had such a crush on Nicole Kidman growing up. The way the front cover was presented, it was like, maybe I'm, I'm going to see Nicole Kidman naked. Is that going to happen? Like, could that be on the table? So eventually I saw it. And I, if I recall correctly, there was no nudity, at least on her part. The movie seemed like if I remember right, it was it was just okay. It was not, like, amazing or anything like that. He also made a movie called Finding Forrester, and this wasn't a bad movie. I remember watching this when it came out or, you know, when it was out on home video. The acting was pretty good. The story wasn't bad. Maybe this is unfair, but, like, it felt like an Oscar bait movie. Like, they really wanted to get some awards for it. And as far as I know, it got, like, jack shit for awards. And then Milk with... Sean Penn, and I believe his first name's Harvey. Harvey Milk is the guy that the movie is based on, and it is, he he was, I don't know a ton about the story. I know that I, he was, he was involved, he was, I, I think he was a gay guy, and he was involved in, like, gay rights and things like that. I never watched the movie, even though it, seems like the kind of movie I might enjoy because I was watching Siskel and Ebert, but it was like after, after even Ebert, I think had left. And it was like Richard Roper and this is named Michael Phillips or something. Anyway, they're talking about this fucking movie. Right. And like, for me, it's like, okay, these reviews, when I talk about movies, if I'm talking about these ones at the beginning in the intro to the episode, I generally try not to, like, spoil stuff and, like, reveal too much. The movie that I choose as the topic of the the overall episode, obviously, I'm, I am I walk through the plot pretty much, and I, I, I'm gonna give away critical plot points, but, like, they're giving a review of Milk, and it's like, they fucking reveal, like, major shit that happens and act like it's no big deal because it's a historical thing and people already know what happens. And I'm like, I didn't even fucking know who Harvey Milk was at all until this movie came along. So, basically, like, they kind of fucked me out of wanting to see this movie. And so it's really unfortunate because I, I really hate to see that. Like, you should know better as a film critic to be like, revealing a bunch of shit. You should be able to give a high-level analysis and review of the movie without, you know, giving away everything. So, for the writers on this movie, of course, it's Ben Affleck and Matt Damon. Affleck did The Last Duel, and he actually wrote that with Matt Damon, and 
that movie was, I covered it in my blog, I believe, and it was, it was not a very entertaining movie. The thing was, is it's like, I, I remember on my blog, I made it like a huge point because Ridley Scott directed The Last Duel and he had come out after the movie performed poorly at the box office, despite having a pretty star-studded cast. And he had essentially blamed millennials and their culture of looking at smartphones and things like that. And that was why his movie hadn't been successful. It couldn't possibly have been that maybe it was just a swing and a miss from Ridley Scott. No, no, that's not a possibility. So uh, the other two, like those are, the last duel was the only one Matt Damon had that like I thought was notable. And Ben Affleck also wrote The Town, which is a solid crime thriller. A lot of people bitch about it because there are certain romantic aspects to it. I don't really care. I think that's fine. You know, I mean, look at The Departed. There's a little bit of romance in that movie. but And he also did Gone Baby Gone. And I think that actually stars his brother, Casey Affleck. And I haven't seen that one in forever, like since it originally came out on video. So for the producer, we have Lawrence Bender. And he did Reservoir Dogs, great. Tarantino movie. Lawrence Bender also did Pulp Fiction, which is another Tarantino movie previously covered on this podcast. And I obviously love that one as well. It's it's definitely my favorite film of his. And it's it's just such a fucking cool movie. He, did, he produced a movie called Four Rooms. I remember like one of my friends, like it was like when I worked at uh, a popular pizza chain... And my manager, like everybody at this place like hung out with one another and it was like they everybody was really social with each other. And I remember hanging out with my manager and she told me she really loved Four Rooms and I broke down and watched it and I, I thought, like I had to tell her, I thought it was like legitimately one of the dumbest fucking movies I've ever seen. And I didn't, I didn't like much of any of it. Tim Roth is the focal point. I like Tim Roth. I didn't like him in this movie. Like he, his mannerisms and things like that were just fucking weird. But anyway, I digress. So the last one of Lawrence Bender's that I'll talk about is Capone from 2020, which it's like a 2020 movie. Make a wish, you know, like, I mean, there just aren't that many of them. This movie has Tom Hardy in it. I just, I fucking hated Capone. And, and it was, I mean unbelievably bad. Then for the score, we have composer Danny Elfman, and of course he famously did Batman from 1989, which not only did I previously cover on this podcast, but it's also kind of my favorite movie of all time, and I've seen it like 600 times. He also did Beetlejuice, and full disclosure, Danny Elfman does, or has done, a lot of Tim Burton movies those the scores to those movies he also did let's i'll be honest here like he he's done a shit ton of scores and i only selected a few because there's only so much time in the day but he did the mission impossible score from like i was it it was the mid 90s i think maybe 96 or something but like and that was previously covered on this podcast by the way uh he made he he made the score to that one. 
also, Danny Elfman did the Simpsons theme, the TV show, the animated show that has been on for like four decades or whatever. So for the cast, we have Matt Damon, who plays Will Hunting, and he was in The Departed, previously covered on this podcast. That's a fucking great one. Scorsese, crime thriller, fucking love it. Can't get enough of it. He was also in The Born Identity, previously covered on this podcast as well. And that one's fucking great. It's like a one-man army type movie. There are movies that you could probably argue are inspired by it that have come out since then that are, in my opinion, better. But it's still a solid movie. It's still worth watching to this day. He also was in Ocean's Eleven, And I love Ocean's Eleven, previously covered on this podcast, and it's probably, for my money, the best heist movie out there. He was in The Legend of Bagger Vance, and I only mention this one because when I was younger, I used to be really into golf, but Legend of Bagger Vance is like a Depression-era story about a golf tournament, and this guy who comes, he's a He was a great golfer, but he went to the war and he kind of had a lot of like PTSD type shit. And, you know, he came back home and he just wasn't the same guy and he kind of lost his way. Decent movie. Uh, The the main, the kid that the, the plot kind of centers around, more or less, the kid that they cast in that role is truly awful. Anyway, we'll move on to Robin Williams, who plays Dr. Sean McGuire, and he was in Patch Adams. I seem to remember liking Patch Adams. I've only seen it once. I remember there there are like ups and downs in the plot, and there's, there's things about it that I could see people not liking for sure. He was also in Mrs. Doubtfire, where he is getting a divorce, and he is like a a voice actor and he decides to have his friends make him up to look like an older woman and have and then use that as a way to be able to see his kids because his ex or his soon to be ex-wife is like looking for a nanny and so that's I mean it's I, I'm not a big fan of it I I don't I I thought it was an okay movie but I I mean, full disclosure, this is going to sound awful because, you know, the late, great Robin Williams, he's he's uh, he's since passed on, but I, I was never, like, a diehard Robin Williams fan. I, I, I was really middle of the road with him. Like, I just, I, I didn't think he was, he was somebody that I was, like, a huge fan of. He also voiced Genie in Aladdin. Solid fucking animated movie. Never saw the live action remake because I don't think any of those fucking Disney live action remakes of the cartoons that they have made are worth a shit and there's no reason to fucking watch them. So he was also in Good Morning Vietnam and this is one that I've never seen and I hear it referenced all the time. But it was like, I remember, I think I started it like it was on streaming somewhere and I started watching it And it was like, I got, I don't know, 10 minutes in. And I was just like, I don't know if this is for me. 
Then we have Ben Affleck, who plays Chucky Sullivan, and he was in The Town, which he also wrote and I think maybe directed, I don't remember for sure. He was in a movie that is less talked about, especially when it comes to Ben Affleck, because I think even people that like this movie forget he's in it, but he was in Extract, which was a Mike Judge movie. It had Jason Bateman in the lead role, and it had a handful of other great fucking cast members and all of the all of the characters were so well crafted in the movie it's it's centers around this factory where they produce extract like you'd use in baking or whatever and i absolutely fucking love extract it's so funny and ben affleck's character is fucking great like he's he's such a scumbag you know he's just he's not like a really great guy but it's fucking great so he was also in Gone Girl, previously covered on this podcast, and I really love that one. I've talked about it all I can. It's a it's a great movie. Check it out. It's it's a drama. It's uh it's but it's a thriller. Really, it's it's fucking great. And then the last one I wanted to mention was that he was in Daredevil from I think maybe two thousand three was the year it came out, and it's a. Uh, Guys, it's it's a pretty bad movie. It's it's not particularly good. I can watch it. It's not like you can't sit through it. It's not that level of bad, but it is not a horribly good movie. And then we have Stellan Skarsgård, who plays Professor Gerald Lambeau. And I know him best, I guess, from like the Marvel movies, specifically the Thor movies, where he plays... I think it's he's like a scientist. I... I for, I don't even remember him being like, I recently watched The Hunt for Red October, which was previously covered on this podcast. When I watched it for that episode, I don't remember if I made note of the fact that he was in that movie, but if I did, I totally fucking forgot he was even in The Hunt for Red October. Minnie Driver plays Skylar, and she was in Return to Me, which is a movie with her and David Duchovny. David Duchovny's wife, like, at the very beginning of the movie, I'm not, like, really giving anything too deep away, but, like, his wife passes away. Minnie Driver gets one of his late wife's organs, and they, like, probably her heart, I think it was her heart, and they fall in love with each other and all this stuff, and it's, uh, it's, I don't remember anything else about it. I don't remember if it was good. I assume it was mediocre, but that's just my assumption at all times. She was also in Gross Point Blank with John Cusack, and that one's solid. I've only seen it once. I don't remember it very well, but it's it's a it's a solid movie. It's uh it, it's a a cool idea for a plot and and I like John Cusack a lot, so I never really have many complaints about a lot of his movies before he started just, like, signing on to every fucking movie he could. And last but not least, we have Casey Affleck. He plays Morgan O'Malley, and he was in a movie called Manchester by the Sea. And that's a fucking super good movie. It's so fucking sad. Like, honestly... It's one of those movies that you see it and it's like so devastating to sit and watch. He was also in Soul Survivors, previously covered on this podcast, and that was a fucking god-awful horror movie that was trying to capitalize on the 
mid to late 90s horror movies that had come out and did a horrible job. So for casting notes, when Ben Affleck and Matt Damon suggested they would like to act in the major roles of the movie, many studio execs said that they wanted actors like Brad Pitt and Leonardo DiCaprio instead. Initially, producer Harvey Weinstein, who I have noted here is a deplorable, awful human being, did not want Minnie Driver at all for the role of Skylar, feeling she wasn't cute enough for the part. Because Gus Van Zant, Matt Damon, and Ben Affleck wanted her in the movie, Weinstein ultimately relented and Driver went on to be nominated for Best Actress in a Supporting Role Oscar. So good for her. I certainly like Minnie Driver. I think she's great. In a Boston Magazine retrospective interview, Ben Affleck mentioned that he and Matt Damon wrote the part of Sean with Morgan Freeman and Robert De Niro in mind, and he and Damon would imitate their voices when reviewing the dialogue in the script. Ultimately, that part went to Robin Williams. For the plot synopsis, a brilliant self-taught young man from South Boston with a troubled past gains the attention of a professor when he secretly solves an equation intended to stump a class of grad students. The Boston accent's going to come and go. I don't feel like it's it's horrible. It's just like, there are certain words that I come across that I'm like, I know that that should have some kind of inflection with a Boston accent, but I, I don't know for sure what it is, and so I have to like backpedal. The tagline to this movie is, some people can never believe in themselves until someone believes in them. We'll just dive right into the fucking plot, as always. Miramax is the studio that made this movie, and every time I see Miramax come up before a movie, I think of Jay and Silent Bob Strike Back, where Jay says, Miramax? I thought they only made classy pictures, like the piano or the crying game. Fucking great. I fucking love that. So the fact that this is like a Danny Elfman score that you're hearing throughout this movie is unbelievable to me. It's just fucking astounding. Like, his scores are usually great, but this one really demonstrates some range. So Stellan Skarsgård, who plays the professor, is just not in enough shit. So the professor puts this equation on this chalkboard in the hallway and hopes that perhaps one of his students can prove it or whatever uh, whatever they call it. I don't even know. It's like, it's an equation. I don't know. It's like a, a, a thing you have to prove. And he's hoping that by the end of the semester, they'll be able to, like, one of them will be a standout enough to resolve or, you know, to solve the equation. Will's buffing the halls at MIT. This is Matt Damon, the, the main character. And he, he comes up, he sees the, the equation on the board and he writes the solution on there. Obviously nobody's around to see him do it. And this, this movie does not fuck around getting right into it. Like they automatically have him doing this, setting everything in the movie in motion. It's so weird. It's like he's at this fucking, some kind of class reunion or something. Some of his students come up to him out of nowhere and they're like asking him who solved the equation. And he's like, what the fuck are you talking about? But initially he's like borderline creepy. Like he's all, he like, he says something about having a drink with one of the female students 
it it just it comes off fucking weird and i don't know if they were going for that or not and honestly like i'm just noting like how fucking great the all the performances in this movie are even in the minor roles will and his friends so like chucky is there and i think casey affleck's character's name is morgan they they get fast food somewhere and there's this like back and forth between chucky and morgan chucky is suggesting that they're going to put his the burger that he ordered on layaway because Chucky was the one that actually paid for Morgan's burger. And so he said he's going to, Chucky said he's going to set it on the dash and he can pick it up in a week once he, he forks over the money to be able to buy it himself. And it's, it's a fucking great little bit for my note. I put Willie and the Po boys are always getting into trouble. You see, and Willie and the Poe Boys is a reference to Creedence Clearwater Revival. There's a song called Down on the Corner, and it's also the title of their album, Willie and the Poe Boys. They make this decision to have this fight, but it's like they come up to this basketball court and they get out and Will starts this fight and like he displays these severe rage issues and it's ridiculous. So the professor presumably like the next day or something, has this big turnout in class with everyone wanting to know who solved this equation. Will gets out of jail and finds another problem on the board and he solves it. This time around, the professor actually catches him in the act and Will flees and they can't catch him, but they realize he did correctly solve the equation. They they lose track of Will. They can't track him down and figure out where he is. Chucky, Will, and company are going to this Harvard bar. And Chucky, who has already established his reputation with women earlier in this movie, starts hitting on Skyler, who I mentioned is played by Minnie Driver. So Chucky makes up some bullshit thing about thinking he had a class with her, despite everyone in the vicinity knowing that he not only does not take classes, but he especially does not take classes at fucking Harvard. Like, get the fuck out of here. So he tells her he thought that it was a history class they had together. Like, he doesn't even think to make it sound like a more college-like history course. And I guess that's just because, you know, he's, he's not wicked smart. At this point, like, a blonde guy in a ponytail approaches the two of them while Chucky's trying to pick her up, and the blonde guy starts to hassle Chucky about these obvious lies. Chucky lacks the quick wits to shut Blondie down or even respond in a way that makes him less of an easy target, I guess. And Will is watching the situation unfold and he's absorbing some information and he just he's trying to figure out how he can defend Chucky. So Blondie starts in with a bit of mockery and tries to hold Chucky's feet to the fire by asking some college-level history questions. And then this is when Will comes in and interjects and man, this is just, it's one of my favorite moments in all of movies. Which is saying a lot because it's not even my favorite moment in this movie, and it's still so fucking good. Will just knows his shit. He's very intelligent. He does a ton of reading, and he obviously retains it very well. And he he basically walks this blonde guy through 
what he knows has been his educational background. He's fucking laying him out. So Will specifically not only knows what he's talking about, but every time Blondie pipes up with another opinion or bit of info, Will knows exactly what it is before Blondie can even say it, and Will can cite the book that he stole it from with the fucking page number. Will tells Blondie he could have gotten his education he spent 150 grand on at a public library, and Blondie says, well, at least he'll have a degree... And Will dismisses this as a fair trade if he doesn't have to be as much of an unoriginal asshole as Blondie. So the confrontation kind of fizzles out. And later on, Skylar approaches Will at the bar, giving him shit for never coming and talking to her. Now that she has to leave, they exchange numbers. And Will's pretty giddy about this. We get this famous moment where... Will's leaving with his friends and he sees Blondie inside sitting at a table with some other people and Will pounds on the glass to get his attention and Will asks Blondie if he likes apples and Blondie says yeah and Will takes the napkin with Skylar's info on it and holds it up to the glass and says I got a number How do you like them apples? Fucking great. Anyway, so meanwhile, the professor is trying to track Will down by going to his place of employment. And Will's boss reveals that Will is actually on parole for these, you know, these things that we've already kind of gotten glimpses of. And the professor finds Will in a courtroom, passionately defending himself, and the judge is reading about his criminal history and background. And despite Will making, like, a decent case for himself. It's like the judge sees all of the shit he's done. And it's basically like, yeah, fuck you. You're, you're clearly a problem child. Like I'm not going to give you the benefit of the doubt here. So it seems like Will has had a wicked hard life, you know? So the professor comes into Will's interrogation room and shares that he has arranged for Will to be let out of jail and that he'll have to meet regularly with the professor and other prestigious minds as well as he has to go to a therapist like he has to start uh getting counseled in some way so will is going around meeting with different professors or scholars but it's like he's clearly not taking any of it seriously at all one by one he's just telling these bullshit stories to them trying to get them going finally we meet the late great robin williams as sean mcguire and he's teaching a class And he is a therapist that the professor knows from college. They were like roommates or something. Will and Sean have their first session and naturally Sean has to work to get Will to stop bullshitting with him. It's pretty well established that Will is trying to get his insulting digs in and find out what he can say to maybe set Sean off. And so he finds that when he makes mention of Sean's wife... It's clearly a touchy subject, and Sean, he doesn't respond to it just like he's put off by it. He responds to it like a, like a very sternly and aggressively saying, like, you shut the fuck up. Sean does agree to another appointment, even though the first one wasn't very successful. There are so many great scenes and moments in this movie, and so many of them are, like, incredibly necessary to the story, trying to figure out what's going on with Will, really. And they kind of reveal... 
a little bit of his backstory here and there. Will and Skylar have a little date, and they have a little, they have their, honestly a nice dynamic. And there's some enjoyable back and forth between them. I really enjoy Mini Driver in this, honestly. Like, the Skylar character is very likable. So we have another therapy session. But they go outside for this one and sit on a bench in the park. Sean points out that Will's young age and lack of life experiences is definitely something he's noticed. He knows all of this information. He's learned all of these things. But he's never actually had, like, first-hand encounters with most things in life. He's essentially only been reading about it, you know? So he, he uses, like, an example of, like, you know, he doesn't, he'll never know, or, you know, he doesn't know what it smells like in the Sistine Chapel or things like that. Will had clearly upset Sean in their first appointment, and Sean tries to get through to him and maybe make him open up a little bit. I should mention, we keep seeing Chucky come to the back door of Will's house just to pick him up. And Will's house is a total shithole. And there's some progress being made here and there by Will. And so Sean figures out that Will keeps everybody at arm's length. And he does that to protect himself. He shares this great line about how Skylar isn't perfect. And Will isn't perfect either. But they might be perfect for each other. And that's what's important. So Will goes to see Skylar and apologizes for not calling after their date. And she kind of just thought he was, you know, he had moved on or something. So there's this story about Sean missing this huge Red Sox game to go on a date with his future wife. And we find out this wife of Sean's, it was like they were very happily married. She had cancer and after having it for like two years, she finally succumbed to it. And Sean had to, like, take care of her. And, and Will is just, like, he can't imagine fucking sacrificing attending something like a huge Red Sox game just to, like, hang out with some girl. Skylar insists on meeting Will's friends. So they go to the bar with the friends and hang out. And Chucky tells a very long joke with a very underwhelming finish, honestly. It's not a very good joke or even story. So it's like after Chucky tells his joke, Skylar decides she's going to tell her own joke, and it's much better and much shorter, and it involves a blowjob and cum. And it's clear that Will is avoiding his house in regard to Skylar, and he doesn't really want... He, he talked about these brothers that he has. Like, the brothers don't exist. But it's established that Will is an orphan, and he was in the foster care system for most of his youth. Later on, Sean and the professor are discussing what's best for Will, and Sean wants to consider a more healthy, developmental approach with Will, and to let him figure out what he wants to do and how to do it. The professor wants to just rush things and get him out there using his mind before he's given attention to some of the problems that he has. Skylar pitches the idea of Will moving to California with her since she's going to Stanford soon. Will pretty much reveals all of his insecurities to her in this moment, both the insecurities about moving to California and what that would be potentially mean and what he's worried about there. The professor gets mad at Will for blowing off the meeting that he set up where Will sent Chucky in his place and 
I don't remember if it was like an interview or what it was. I think it was an interview. So Will's frustrated because the problems that the professor keeps posing to him are way too fucking easy, and he doesn't want to spend the rest of his life explaining shit to people. He has an interview with the NSA, Will does, and they want him to break codes for them, and they ask why on earth Will should pass up something like this. You know, how, how could he pass up an opportunity to work for such a huge, important agency? The NSA guy that is interviewing Will... He asks Will that question, like, there's a million reasons to work for the NSA. Why shouldn't you work for the NSA? And so Will says, why shouldn't I work for the NSA? That's a tough one, but I'll take a shot. Will has this very long response to that question. So this is the, this is, that's the best moment of the movie to me. Like, that's, that's like the epitome. It spells out how insecure, worried, or even paranoid Will truly is with everything and how his intelligence only intensifies that because he knows too much. Will and Sean have a very intense session after the interview where Sean confronts Will about his bullshit. Will argues there is honor in some of the more standard, everyday jobs that people do. Sean, po Sean points out that if Will wanted to be a fucking bricklayer or mechanic or a janitor, despite what else he's capable of, he wouldn't have taken a janitor job at MIT and made it a point to solve equations not meant for him on a chalkboard in a hallway. Will and Chucky are working together at this construction site, and Chucky finds out from Will, after, you know, he asks him what's going on with Skylar, and Will tells him that Skylar left and she went to school. Will reveals that his intentions are to keep on doing the work he's been doing with the kind of jobs he's been having, and not take any position that he could get on the momentum of his beautiful brain. He suggests that he'll grow old in South Boston, and stay friends with all the same people and have a wife and kids and their kids will play together and all that stuff. And Chucky kind of out of nowhere just like lays into Will. He tells Will that if he's still living there when they're in their 40s or 50s, that he'll kill him. That he says, Will owes it to the people in his life to pursue a job that would put his unique skills to work. And Will Will is frustrated by this because he thinks it's bullshit. It's like, just because he has these skills doesn't mean he should have to do all of the stuff that people are telling him he should do. Chucky just explains that, like, so many people would kill to have that, and, and to pass it up would be insulting to those that will never, ever have that opportunity or be as intelligent as Will is. Chucky essentially says that it's like, he has a winning lottery ticket, but he's too much of a pussy to cash it in. So Chucky shares how he always has a wish. He'll go to pick up Will, and he's like hoping on his way to the door that when he knocks, Will won't be there, and Will will have left without saying anything to anybody and just gone on to pursue his ambitions instead of just staying around. So Sean offers to let Will see his file, and Will's kind of like iffy about wanting to look at it. And they end up talking about their, Sean and Will end up talking about their respective experiences with physical abuse in their life. And Will reveals that he had a foster father who would lay out a wrench, a stick, and a belt for Will to decide what he would prefer being beaten with. 
And Will says he'd often go for the wrench. And Sean asks why, you know? And Will's just like, because fuck him, that's why. Sean eventually has to tell Will the things that have happened to him are not his fault. All of these things from his childhood, all of these these troubles he has, they're not his fault. It's a very gripping and sad moment that, and, and like Will breaks down into tears, but full disclosure, Robin Williams seems like he says, it's not your fault like 600 times in this little moment here. So clearly life altering decisions have to be made at this point if this movie is going to ultimately have a point to it and there's going to be any growth. So Will goes to another interview and as they have their final session, he tells Sean he's decided to take one of the positions that were offered to him and they exchange info and Sean reveals that he's going traveling and it's always nice to see supporting characters get a little bit of growth as well because some of the criticisms like early on in the movie that Sean gave to Will about how Will behaved, it's like Will kind of turned those back around on him. Will sees his friends at the bar and Chucky gives him a shitty old car for his birthday so he can drive himself to his new job. And Will stops to see Sean, who is packing his bags at his place and leaves a note in the mailbox without coming inside. And Chucky comes to see Will at home, but... Will never comes to the door, just like Chucky had told Will he wished would happen someday. So the note that Will left Sean in the mailbox said that he had to go see about a girl. And that was something that Sean had said. That was why he missed the Red Sox game. That's how, you know, that's how the movie ends. That's, it's, it's a very nice little ending. So praise for this movie. This fucking story is brilliant, parading around as almost simplistic the performances from every actor or actress are stellar, believable, likable, all that shit. I love a good grounded drama. I mean, I I pretty much watch any kinds of movies, as you guys may have noticed, but I I really like if I get a nice if I'm in a mood and it's like I just want to watch something that's just reality. It's like or like feels like reality. I I'll watch it, and I of course I love the wicked. Boston accents that's always fucking good so honestly I the only criticism I have is just that I wish that there could somehow be more of this movie without it being unnecessarily long or overblown or whatever all right so moving on to trivia Matt Damon and Ben Affleck found a clever way to choose the right studio for their script The story goes that on page 60 of the script, they wrote a completely out-of-nowhere sex scene between Will and Chucky. They took it to every major, major studio, and nobody even mentioned the scene. When they met with Harvey Weinstein at Miramax, he said, I only have one really big note on the script. About page 60, the two leads, both straight men, have a sex scene. What the hell is that? Damon and Affleck explained that they put the scene in specifically to show them who actually read the script and who didn't. As Weinstein was the only person who brought it up, Miramax was the studio chosen to produce the film. Matt Damon, a former Harvard student, originally intended to make the title character a physics prodigy. He discussed this idea with Sheldon L. Glashow, a Nobel laureate in physics and at the time a Harvard professor. 
Glasho told him that the premise did not ring true to him. He suggested that the main character be a math prodigy instead. He referred Matt Damon to his brother-in-law, Daniel Kleitman, a professor of mathematics at MIT, who provided advice on the story. Glashow and Kleitman are thanked in the credits. When Robin Williams read the script via Francis Ford Coppola and really liked it, his question for Coppola was, who are these guys? Mini Driver's character Skyler is named after Damon's girlfriend Skyler Satinstein, who left Damon for Metallica drummer Lars Ulrich before filming began. Damon and Driver became romantically involved during production. After Mel Gibson dropped out of directing, Michael Mann expressed interest in directing. However, he wanted to make two major changes. He wanted Will and his friends to be car thieves, and he did not want Matt Damon for the lead role since he was still relatively unknown then. The producers who wanted Damon suggested that Mann film some screen tests with Damon and Ben Affleck. After Mann, after Mann filmed the screen tests, he went back to the producers and said he still did not want Damon in the lead. So the producers in Miramax parted ways with Mann since the film was Damon and Affleck's project from the very start. In an interview between Matt Damon and Kevin Smith at IMDb's 2016 San Diego Comic-Con, Damon mentioned that Smith was instrumental in the movie being made. It was actually Smith that brought the script directly to Harvey Weinstein when the other studios were not even showing interest at all. Kevin Smith was offered the chance to direct the movie, but he turned it down because he knew Matt Damon and Ben Affleck's first choice for director was Gus Van Zandt. Mel Gibson was offered a chance to direct, even meeting with Matt Damon, Ben Affleck, and executive producer Harvey Weinstein, but ultimately passed on directing. Alright, so on to info and ratings. We have a runtime of 126 minutes. This movie is rated R by the Motion Picture Association of America. Budget, $10 million. Opening weekend, 272000 Worldwide gross, 225.9 million. IMDb rating, 8.3. Rotten Tomato Critics score, 97%. Rotten Tomato Audience score, 94%. Personal rating, 5 out of 5 stars. This is like fucking top notch. Honestly, I love this one. I'm rarely not in the mood to watch it. I just really fucking enjoy it. I really hope you guys are enjoying these. Obviously, Give me your suggestions, requests, blah, blah, blah. Have a good rest of your day. Bye now. Brandon at Random Reviews artwork, theme music, and podcast are written, performed, recorded, engineered, directed, and produced by Brandon Griffiths in association with Brandon at Random Reviews Entertainment. 